Welcome to podcast number 19. 19, wow, hard to believe. I mean, I started off at what? Uh, one, a very good place to start. I'm <laughs> up to 19 now. And uh, I've been away for a while from podcasting because I've been doing some writing. I've written uh, six, yeah, six short stories, <clears throat> which amazes even me. And I'm really hard to amaze. And uh, I just finished one a couple weeks ago. Actually, a couple have been a couple have been published by a very very small magazine, online magazine up in uh, Ontario. Really nice people. I, I write wrote some crazy stuff. They liked it and said, "Hey, this is great. We love it." So, if you want, I'll uh, give you the uh, location of that. I'm not sure you'll enjoy reading what I wrote. It's really weird, Kerouacian in the stream of consciousness consciousness stuff, which is what I enjoy writing most. I guess it's, it's kind of chaotic and there's no form to it. And, Sounds like my life, huh? Okay, so uh, we're going to do a Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli show. And what you're listening to there is uh, Django Reinhardt. By the way, his, his name is spelled D, as in dog, D-J-A-N-G-O and R-E-I-N-H-A-R-D-T. And he was a gypsy from Belgium. The opening music and what you're listening to as background is all from something, uh, it's, it's, I guess, his most popular piece. I wouldn't say a hit because everything he did was a hit. He was uh, praised as like the great guitar player. And it's called uh, Minor Swing. And what you have is a, uh, a couple guys, a drummer and a, a piano player and a bass, I guess. And then uh, Django Reinhardt on guitar. And the violin, you can hear it in the background, is uh, Stefan Grappelli. And so far as I know, Django Reinhardt was the first well-known guitar player in jazz. I mean, who was like, you know, really stood out. And as far as violin, violin with jazz, I think it was pretty much unknown. Stefan Grappelli uh, lived to a ripe old age. Uh, Django Reinhardt didn't live as long. I saw Stefan Grappelli playing on an NPR show back in, I guess it was the 80s. Well, before I go any further, uh, let me say that I have a new microphone. It's an Audio-Technica, a good brand, tw- uh, 2020. And it's plugged into a, a Focusrite audio interface. And it's uh, pretty neat. Uh, let me uh, know if it sounds any better or any worse, okay? So, just who are these guys? Uh, Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli. If you don't listen to a lot of jazz, uh, especially older stuff, you probably wouldn't have heard of them. But if you do listen to a lot of older jazz, they're legendary and you definitely know them. Now, we really can't talk about Stefan Grappelli and Django Reinhardt without talking about the hot club of France. Now, the word hot these days is taken on like ludicrous meanings, you know, like, well, she's really hot or he's really hot or that car is really hot or that product is hot. But back then, they, they started using it to show something above the bland and cool, legitimate suavity of, you know, of uh, French music. The founders of uh, the Hot Club were trying to introduce and make popular uh, jazz, American jazz, in France. And they started the Hot Club. And I will go to my old friend, the Wikipedia, to give you some uh, background for this. The Hot Club of France 
is a French organization of jazz fans dedicated to the promotion of traditional jazz, swing, and blues. It was founded in 1931 in Paris by five students of the Lycée Carnot, which is a very prestigious uh, school in Paris. Okay, in 1928, a group of graduates of that school came together to listen to jazz and later to promote its acceptance in France. The point was to make the public aware of jazz and to defend and promote the new style in the face of all opposition. The new style as opposed to what had been going on for the past few decades previous to uh, jazz was new in France, even though it had been in the U.S. for a number of years. The club began in the fall of 1931 as the Jazz Club Universitaire, as the members were all still students. It was reborn and reimagined in 1932 as the Hot Club de France. The club was founded by jazz enthusiasts and amateurs for the sole purpose of helping to spread the music to the rest of the world. The members joined together to promote the music in whatever form they could, leading to such developments as concerts, the creation of the Swing Music label in 1937, along with radio talk shows and conferences and uh, other venues. Uh, the amateur organization played an important role in the diffusion and discovery of jazz in France, and copycat organizations sprung up all over the place. So that's basically what the background of the uh, Hot Club de France was. And into this came the two people the show is about, who formed the quintet of the Hot Club de France. How did that come about? Like this. The Hotel Claridge featured the double bass player Louis Vola's Hotel Orchestra, uh, which played there as evening entertainment. The group gave both Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli, who were members, the opportunity to jam between sets. It was during one of these informal jam sessions that members of the Hot Club discovered the pair. This, in turn, led to the founding of the Quintet of the Hot Club of France by Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli. Their first official performance was on December 2nd of 1934, and the group was active in one form or another until 1948. Their most famous lineup included Reinhardt Grappelli, the guy who had the orchestra that they played in, Louis Vola on bass, the rhythm guitarist Robert hmm, Chaput, C-H-A-P-U-T, and Joseph Reinhardt, Django's brother, who filled out the ensemble sound and added occasional percussion. And there you have how the Quintet of the Hot Club de France was formed, who was in it, and when they got started. Okay, let's hear some music by Grappelli and Reinhardt, who were featured at the, uh, the front of the Quintet of the Hot Club of France. And most of the cuts I've heard on Amazon Digital Music, which is where I get most of my stuff, featured uh, a really good piano player and i guess they had three piano players and i'll be darned if i can find the name of any of them and warning kind of late in the show here that uh, this will probably be an hour-long show because i want to play a lot of their music and this is something that is not usually played on stations whatever jazz stations are left in the country in the radio so uh, i'm gonna uh, do a lot of uh, exposing of some of their better stuff I guess it's all good, but my, as usual, my favorite stuff. Well, the music I played in the background for that uh, academic exercise <laughs> was uh, Confessin' from the original uh, quintet. And this track I'm going to play is not, I believe, from the original quintet because the recording quality is, is much better, more like, you know, the 40s, but it's still the, uh, the quintet. And it's called Swing Guitars. 
proving once and for all the absoluteness of jazz violin. Isn't he incredible? Most of the tracks I'm going to play on this uh, program will have a similar structure with Grappelli and Reinhardt alternating uh, courses. They played really well together. Now some background on these guys. Um, let's do Stefan Grappelli first, the violinist. This is a brief biography from a site called ConnollyMusic.com. Grappelli began lessons on the violin at age 12. He was also very interested in the street violinists and started modeling his playing after them. He was trained at the Paris Conservatory and graduated with a medal in 1920. He began busking, which I guess is like playing on the street, right? And he played in pit orchestras and hotel orchestras. Interested in all kinds of music, in 1928 he heard jazz violinist Joe Minuti. So I guess there was another violinist who was uh, big in jazz, but not as big as Grappelli is going to be. When solo jazz violinists were rare. In 1931 he met gypsy jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt. Reinhardt and Grappelli formed one of the first all-string jazz bands, the Quintet of Hop the Hot Club of France in 1934. The band broke up in 1939, but Reinhardt and Grappelli continued to play and tour together. Classical violinist Yehudi Menuhin, a great admirer of Grappelli's improvisational skills, once commented, Stefan is like one of those jugglers who send ten plates into the air and recovers them all. His jazz style largely self-taught, Grappelli's playing mixed a lyricism and fast swing that made him a living legend in France as well as in the U.S., he continued touring with great success up until the last year of his life, 1997. Although his health was poor by now, he toured the United Kingdom in March and then played concerts in Australia and New Zealand, giving his last public performance in Christchurch, New Zealand, before returning to Paris via Hong Kong. He made his final recording, four tracks, with a classical violinist, Iwao Furusawa, plus guitarist Mark Fawcett and bassist Philippe Veray in Paris in August of 1996. And he died the following year in 1997. He was born in 1908. I mean, he had a really good, long life. Very successful and uh, gave us a lot of uh, great music. I'm going to pick out a couple of Rappelli solos from a couple of recordings, even though Reinhardt's also on them, just to uh, give you an idea of his uh, amazing variety of, um, well, his creativity. Thank you. 
Those two selections were from uh, Marie and then Loverman. I can listen to this guy all day. So beautiful. I've it's like it's like he's I mean, what he can do with a violin. You know, I've listened to classical music all my life, along with jazz. And uh I've never I've heard, you know, highly technical stuff, very difficult to play, but I've never heard anybody play like that. And maybe that's why I like jazz so much. And now on to Django Reinhardt, the Belgian gypsy, whose first name, Django, means I awake. And here's some background from a site named jazzstandards.com. He was born on January 10th, 1910, in a gypsy caravan and lived his young life on the outskirts of Paris in a disreputable area called La Zone, where the gypsies in medieval tradition gathered the caravans. Refusing to go to school, he grew up illiterate, a free spirit, who roamed the streets with his brother and friends, stole chickens, went to the cinema, played billiards, and listened to music intently. His rise to fame in the jazz world of the 20th century put him in a situation that was the reverse of the Connecticut Yankee who visited King Arthur's court. According to Charles Delaney, author of Django Reinhardt, the young boy didn't get his own instrument, a six-string banjo guitar, until he was 12. Reinhardt, who was of Roma, or Gypsy, parentage, traveled through France and Belgium as a boy and young man learning to play the violin, guitar, and banjo. Although self-taught, he was amazingly skillful and soon was performing on street corners and in cafes. World War I had brought jazz to Paris and Django was entranced by this new music, soon mastering the art of improvisation. On October 26, 1928, Django was severely burned, his left hand maimed in a caravan fire. During many months of recuperation, he taught himself to play again, using primarily the index and third finger of his left hand. In 1934, the guitarist met violinist Stefan Grappelli, who was to become his musical partner for some 15 years in Le Quintet de Hot Club de France. In Michael Dragny's biography, Django, The Life and Music of the Gypsy Legend, Grappelli is quoted as saying, My life started when I met Django. I realized when I was with Django, we could produce something not ordinary. The quintet toured Europe and recorded with great success until the beginning of World War II. Reinhardt returned to France where he became further immersed in jazz. During his career, he played with many famous American musicians including Dizzy Gillespie, Coleman Hawkins, and Louis Armstrong. In 1946, Duke Ellington invited Django to join his band in the U.S. where he was introduced to the electric guitar, which he quickly mastered. Ellington's drummer, Sonny Greer, was awed by Django. That cat could take a guitar and make it talk. Nobody played like him. Upon returning to Paris, Django organized his nouveau quintet, occasionally joined by Grappelli, and began touring again. But as Drenier says, he came to America playing swing. He returned to Paris playing modern jazz. The dichotomy of music between swing and bebop eventually led Django to hang up his guitar during which time he devoted himself to painting. He emerged in 1951, revered by American jazz musicians who flocked to play with him, but he left Paris in his caravan and took his family to Samois-sur-Seine. In 1953, American impresario Norman Grants lured him out of seclusion for jazz at the Philharmonic. Before he could join the tour, 
Django suffered a stroke and died on May 16, 1953, just 43 years old. By the way, the background there was a, a tune called Nuage, N-U-A-G-E-S, which is French for clouds. I think probably from the Debussy influence. Anyway, uh, that of course wasn't was Django Reinhardt on clarinet, but it, uh, it was one of his favorite songs, so I played it in the background. If you've been listening to uh, other podcasts I've done about jazz, um, you've heard some stories about musicians who lived wild lives got involved with drugs, uh, crazy stuff. But this has got to be the most offbeat life of anyone that I've talked about. A guy who was a gypsy, lived in a, literally in a caravan, and uh, played the guitar with uh, two fingers he had left, and mastered the guitar in a way that no one else did, not with the same ease and fluidity. When you listen to this, it's easy to get lost in the technique and say, well, his fingers are really flying over the, over the strings. Just kind of get, sit back and get immersed in it, awash in it. Don't even think about somebody playing it. Just kind of like flow with what he's doing. That was uh, called Daphne, and of course Stefan Grappelli was in the background there. I chose that because of the uh, featuring of Django Reinhardt in that incredible course. Again, uh, it, it's not so much that he's playing fast; he's playing fast and he's good. <laughs> I mean, the, the notes, he's, the strings, the notes that he's hitting are marvelous. He's doing what every great jazz musician does: he develops what he's playing from what he's just played. So far on the show, we've had the pretty sections, the music, and the informative sections. 
with my buddy Wikipedia. Now we're going to have what I consider the interesting section. If you're old enough to have parents who lived through the 30s and 40s, or if you paid attention in school, you have a pretty good idea of what was going on in Europe in the 1930s and uh, early 40s. In a nutshell, it amounted to Adolf Hitler, his rise and his eventual control of the European continent. And along with that, everything German, including music, and German music at the time, amounted basically to two things. <laughs> a worship of Richard Wagner and traditional popular German music. To wit, the march, which fit right in with a German idea then of order and stability. So, this begs the question, when talking about jazz, especially a Belgian gypsy like Django Reinhardt, where did they fit into the German occupation and the German rule book? You probably recognize that as the Alta Kameraden March. I'm going to try an experiment here to, to kind of drive my point home, okay? So listen to this. Now, could you tell the difference in styles between the first and second selections of music there? Probably. Here's a quote from a book I'm going to be referring to. Authoritarian rulers knew that jazz generates the kind of attitude that might shake their power. It can be no accident that totalitarian regimes are all against jazz. It's basic to their character. You improvise, you make your own decisions. You have a special sound. You do not sound like anybody else. Spontaneity means freedom. Bend notes, stretch the rhythm, negate the rhythm if you like. While totalitarian music is martial, right on the beat, you march in step. A lot was going on behind the scenes at this time. Way back in 1985 or 6, I spotted a book in a bookstore. Remember bookstores? Real ones? Uh, the book was called La Tristesse de San Louis which translated as the St. Louis Blues. The Nazis didn't like the term blues because it implied you know, black people in the jungle playing things. So they made it, instead of blues, they made it sadness. <laughs> Tristesse. So, uh, the subtitle of the book was Jazz Under the Nazis. And I'm going to be reading uh, some selections from this great insightful book, including sections on um, Django Reinhardt and how the proponents of jazz negotiated the incredible militaristic structure of Europe at the time and survived. Most, well, some survived, some didn't. Some formed, actually, jazz bands in the Jewish ghettos, and this carried over, to some extent, into concentration camps. There's just some remarkable stories in this book. It's only like a, a couple hundred pages long, and written by a guy named Mike Zwerin, Z-W-E-R-I-N, we interviewed a bunch of people in Germany and France who were alive during this time and experienced everything that we've been uh, talking about here. Here's another quote from one of these people that uh, Zwerin interviewed. His name was uh, Hans Bluthner. He said, 
I've always said that had it not been for jazz, I would have died during the war. It gave me so much happiness and hope. It proved to me that I was not a German, but a member of humanity. The author continues, Rarely, if ever, has any art affected the lives of normal human beings as directly as jazz in Nazi-occupied Europe. It was daily catharsis, a purifying release from tension. The people who played this music were sure that they were involved in the art form of the 20th century. Its principal element, swing, was symbolic, pertinent, and physical. Swing was the popular music of that time and place. Please note, I do not include Germany itself in this assessment, only the countries it occupied. Jazz was packed with drama. It was political dynamite, aesthetically, ecologically, created with religious fervor, and it was popular, a rare conjunction. Where did somebody who played like that fit into all this? A gypsy jazz musician, Django is the only non-American jazz musician to have spawned a school. Jazz musicians have some outlaw in them somewhere if they're serious about this music. Gypsies are defined as outlaws by society. So during World War II, here was a double outlaw on the, on the lamb from a regime which considered jazz musicians monkeys and shipped gypsies to concentration camps. When a musician decides to play jazz for a living, he automatically becomes an outlaw. There's no valid motivation for it other than love. Outlaw motivation in a profit-motivated society. He leaves the crowd. It is not a worn path. There are brambles everywhere. It takes a hard skin, good nerves, a stout heart, and a psychological balance. But not everyone can hack wilderness. Improvisers tend to transpose musical values to a life view, eschew insurance, and don't vote. Those who create the sound of surprise for a living are not likely to plan very far ahead. Decide what to do for today, today. We are unreliable, make abrupt turns on short notice. There are exceptions, of course, but Django was not one of them. Yet he eased through the occupation, checking into the best hotels, riding in limousines, gambling for high stakes, eating gourmet foods, and sleeping until mid-afternoon. His picture on the walls of Paris, his concerts all sold out. French and Germans alike whistled his song, Nuage, which we heard earlier, in the street. But he played billiards or went fishing if he did not feel like performing, contract notwithstanding, disappeared on the road for months with his gypsy brothers. He was, he was as free as a monkey swinging from the high trees above the rules like a secret agent, a double agent so confident that he could afford to come out from the deep cover and have his picture taken with a Luftwaffe officer. So, what happened to Django Reinhardt during the war and afterward? Stefan Grappelli went to London and stayed there for the duration of the war, but during the war, Reinhardt spent most of his time in France. And, of course, this is occupied by the Germans. Though a member of a group of people, the Gypsies, who were regularly being sent off to concentration camps, he miraculously made it through the war. The Germans used Paris basically as their rest and relaxation center, and when soldiers came, they wanted wine, women, and song. And to many of them, jazz was the popular music, and Django was the most famous jazz musician in Paris. 
It was really a golden age of swing in Paris with these gypsies living this kind of grand irony. After the war, Reinhardt realized a lifelong dream of visiting the United States. That trip cemented Reinhardt's influence on guitar players well beyond the boundaries of jazz. Chet Atkins drove up from East Tennessee to Chicago to see Django play with Duke Ellington and to get his autograph. Atkins, who recorded some of Reinhardt's 100 original songs, went on to influence every country guitarist who followed. From country music, Reinhardt's influence spread to rock and roll, says Peter Frampton, the rock guitarist, who still plays Django's solos daily. And as a sidelight, Jimi Hendrix uh, named his album Band of Gypsies in honor of Django Reinhardt. Now, I've spent a lot of time on Django Reinhardt as opposed to Stefan Grappelli, but Reinhardt seems to me to be more interesting in the sense of his life was absurd. <laughs> you know, a contradiction, a gypsy playing jazz in Nazi German-occupied France. Uh, I thought I'd close this podcast with Reinhardt's last recording, which was on April 8th, 1953, and consisted of four selections. The last song I recorded was his own composition, Decaphony, a complex simmering tune backed by Marshall Solal's piano and Sadie Lelemans vibraphone. You'll find this uh, unlike anything you've heard in this program, but as I think I mentioned, he, he after he visited the U.S., his style changed. He came over as sort of a hot club of France quintet's uh, sound and left the U.S. with a modern jazz sound.
I hope you like that i i do although again i have to kind of pigeonhole it into another drawer of modern sounding jazz but it's still django reinhardt so this podcast has been my attempt to expose you to stefan grappelli and django reinhardt two musicians who are unbelievably great but not that well known unless you're kind of heavy into jazz And now it's time to say goodbye, goodbye. Now it's time to say my email address is gcarter1mwc at gmail.com. And keep those cards and letters coming. Let me know what you think of these broadcasts. I'm getting some rarefied blasts of downloads of the the programs. I don't know who's who's doing it because I'm not allowed to due to a security uh, uh, rule. But uh, thank you for doing it, whoever you are. And I hope you enjoyed this one. And I will see you next time. I think I'll focus on writing another story between now and the next podcast. So don't expect one for uh, maybe three weeks. And, uh, oh, by the way, if anybody is interested in my stories, uh, you can find them at Mike Places. That's not Mike's, but just Mike Places. MikePlaces.com. Under the tab, Doc View, D-O-C-V-I-E-W, Doc View tab. Okay, take care, be safe, wear your masks, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.